So welcome to this event. I'm Robert Wade. I teach in the Department of International Development. Um, some um, preliminary points. Uh, first of all, please remember to turn off your mobile phones. Secondly, the hashtag for this event is um, somewhere on that screen, or is it? Uh, so you can follow, uh, you can make your own uh, uh, comments on the talk and converse with others about it. Thirdly, the format is um, that this event will go until 7.30. Um, Sri Mulyani will speak for roughly 45 minutes and then there will be a question and answer session. So now um, I am very pleased to welcome Sri Mulyani. Um, the official introduction goes like this. Um, she has been a managing director at the World Bank since June 2010, one of three managing directors, um, but she is covering, she is responsible for all the bank's operational work, that is across all regions of the bank, which makes her in effect the number two at the World Bank after the president. Before coming to the bank in June 2010, she was Indonesia's finance minister from 2005 to 2010. Before that, she was executive director at the IMF in Washington from 2002 to 2004. Um, she has a PhD in economics from the University of Illinois in 1992. Now the unofficial introduction. First of all, um, her Wikipedia entry reports that on the day of the announcement of her resignation as Indonesia's finance minister and move as managing director to the World Bank, the Indonesian stock exchange fell by 3.8% <laughs> in one day. Such was the negative reaction to the news of her departure. Secondly, in this unofficial introduction, um, I have asked a number of my friends in or close to the World Bank about how she has um, performed as managing director since arrival in June 2010. Now, um, most World Bank staff are very critical of their senior managers and often for good reason. Um, if you think not just of the World Bank but of recent events across the road at the IMF, um, and in that context of general criticism, I have been really amazed at how positive the response of these friends of mine have been to her um, arrival. And I want to just um, read out one response. This is from a senior uh, HR manager at the World Bank who has spent decades assessing, uh, evaluating the performance of senior managers at the World Bank and in other organizations. And this is what this person said. Sri Mul I'm sorry to embarrass you. Sri Mulyani is very impressive, very knowledgeable. She can handle things at the technical professional level as well as the political level. And what is more, she is very nice to work with. If it were my choice, this is the key for, uh, sentence, if it were my choice, I would make her the president.
And my friend finishes by saying, I've not met someone like her in aeons of time. So with that introduction, Sri Mulyani. Well, really, thank you for a very generous and uh, what would you compliment to the to me in terms of introducing me here? I don't think that I deserve this kind of well, whatever Professor Witzer has mentioned. It's good to be here. It's good to be back because I said it's good to be back because I think four years ago I was sitting there when the President of Republic of Indonesia, SBY, gave a lecture in the LSC and explaining about what is the achievement of Indonesia as a country uh, which is surviving from the revolution or reformation or transformation in 97-98 and now become the country which is achieving the investment grade, while many countries now downgraded, so it's it's good to be here. And I was part of the team, so and that I can a little bit claim a little bit credit on the achievement. It's really pleasure for me to be also here because I know that the LSC uh, as a host is a place for academic excellence. I know that Bank is uh, a lot of recruiting staff coming from this school. So you can uh, imagine that if you want to blame BAM, maybe must, some of it is coming from you. Uh, but this is a very interesting time, uh, and especially related to the topic that I'm going to speak this afternoon, that is uh, the revolution and the crisis that will shape the international cooperation and international development. Let me start by the force of change. 2011, that is showing a two very important chains, two forces that change the world. The first is, of course, which is still ongoing, the economic crisis that gripped the uh, European zone. It's initially also uh, only affected the euro, but then it's become the worldwide and spreading to many of developing countries. The second one, 2011 is all witnessing the revolutionary movement, which is swept across the Arab world. They call it Arab Swing, Spring, and that's also resonated uh, around the world, not only in terms of the event itself, but inspiring many youth uh, in terms of what they demand from the government and how they express dissatisfaction. So these two things I will like to discuss with you in brief and how we would like to reflect with you on this issue and explore the feature of these two forces and how these features represent both challenges as well as also questioning about the central assumption of development practice and this is because this is exactly the area which is really touched the issue of the economic model, the development practice, and how these challenges are shaping the way we approach development. So let me first consider the revolution. You all know and familiar with the story. It began in, on November 17, 2010, a 26 years 
old boy or man, Muhammad Bozizi, set himself on fire in the rural town Sidi Bozid. This is 300 kilometers from the capital city of Tunisia, Tunis. He did that in protest against police brutality, corruption, arbitrary sanction, and loss of his livelihood and lack of access to justice. As you all know, as a result of his action, on January 14, then President Ben Ali departed after 23 years in power. And it is not only stopped there, the spirit of change spread across the Arab world. To Egypt, starting January 25th, Yemen, January 27, Libya, February 16, Syria, March 16. That, of course, in addition to a couple of other countries in the region with a varying degree in terms of scale and effect. It is also important to link this wave to other social justice protests that occur all over the world. This is inspired by the image of the Arab Spring and sharing the popular demand of what you call it the social justice. If we take a look at the profile of Bozizi, then we will gain a helpful insight what is really the root of the movement that he triggered. He was a young man, 26 years old, living 300 kilometers from a city, a cosmopolitan metropolitan center of Tunisia. He did not graduate from secondary school. He was a child laborer from age of 10. He, he failed to secure formal job or employment and he became an unregistered street vendor, a support a family of nine on $140 a month. That is half a dollar a day per person. He has been subject to repeated police harassment and extortion and he had no recourse or access to justice. The small profile of Bozizi reflect the big picture of the Arab Spring, the Arab Spring movement. First, while the movement engulfed the entire society with all its age group, you will see that its front and center of this movement were the youth at the age between 18 to 34. The slogan demands of the Egyptian revolution, bread, dignity, social justice, capture all the grievances of the young, just like the youth, the young Bozizi, and articulated the demand of all the youth that mobilized to address those issues. Corruption, police brutality, and lack of political freedom were explicit causes for action. In fact, in Egypt, the youth picked January 25th precisely because that day was police day in Egypt. Those of us who are economists 
I'm an economist by training, find it helpful to revert to number to understand feeling. It's a, a, a bit, so you don't tell how much you love your spouse or your friends by number. It's just, but as an economist, I will, I mean, sometimes we need that to articulate the feeling or to understand the feeling. <laughs> but I will not encourage you for your personal relationship. So let's look at the number and unleash the force of change. Unemployment rate in MENA, Middle East, North Africa regions, are alarmingly, alarmingly high, both if you look at males and females and especially among youth. This is whether you want to compare it to the global average or to unemployment number in the low middle income countries. Let's take this. The global youth unemployment rate stand at 15%. The low middle income countries unemployment rate 13%. For MENA region, the unemployment rate is 22%. That says a lot. Youth unemployment rate in Tunisia are even higher. 33% for men and 28% for women. So even higher than the average region. In Egypt, the number are 17% and 47% for women. The percentage of people living at least than 2% a day is 12.8%. In Egypt, it is 18.5% with another 17% living within 50 cents per day. Poverty differs mar markedly across region, of course. In Egypt, the rural area accounted for 55% of population, but they accounted for 80% of all poor. In Tunisia, we even have no data on poverty in a rural area. The picture of corruption was equally distressing. Transparency International Corruption Perception Index, Tunisia ranked 73 among the 183 countries with score 3.8. Egypt ranked 112 with a score of 2.9. Both Egypt and Tunisia were designated not free, according to the Freedom of the World Report issued by the Freedom House in 2011. So how does this movement cha challenge our approach to development? If we try to analyze the profile of 2011 revolution and protests in terms of how it compared to some of the influential features of multilateral development produce these three contrasts. The first, so I'm referring this one to the World Bank as an institution with the mandate which is articulated on article of agreement. The revolution, this movement was citizen movement without leader. While multilateral development like the bank is essentially governmental. Government is the counterpart that requests, define, as well as implement the development project or program. 
which we support. Second, while economics and politics completely merge in the demand for dignity alone, the World Bank as an institution is by charter a non-political institution. It is supposed to tackle economic issue and stay clear of politics. So Professor Witt mentioned that one of the HR people saying that I can handle the politics, then you, you know that this is not really stay clear from politics. And you can ask a lot of questions to Professor Witt, not to me, because he's really doing a lot of research on that. <laughs> the third, while at the bank we often look at the macroeconomic picture, growth, inflation, some of the sectoral agriculture productivity, this is a proxy of, for developmental success. The people movement demonstrated by this revolution that they feel or clearly disconnect with this macroeconomic picture or achievement. And the everyday hardship that triggered the demand for change. Actually, this is really a real case for me as the Minister of Finance of Indonesia. When the government of Indonesia at that time, of course, as a Minister of Finance, I have to be credible and telling the people that, you know, inflation is good. We are now heading down below 5%. And then I went back to visit my, my late mother. She's a professor, so she's an educated. And then she asked me, with the name of Japanese name as Ndo, Ndo is mean like a girl. How could you say the inflation and the, 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 the price is only like less than 5% increase? You know, yesterday I went to this market, traditional market. She loved to actually do this shopping in a traditional market. And I bought these tomatoes and then all those rice, it is not 5%, you know, 30% increase or it's 50%. I think you lie to the people. <laughs> so I mean, there is a disconnection between the macroeconomic picture which we repeatedly as a policymaker try to explain with the everyday hardship that many people look. And this is like, actually, it's not only professionally challenged for me to explain it to my own mother, but that actually is really like the perception of many public about this disconnection between a good macroeconomic indicator with the everyday life of the people. So before we look at how this, all this contrasts, the three things, shaping the thinking about international development, I would like to now move to the second force at play, the crisis. As you all know that while in the Middle East we have this revolution, there is an economic tremors shaking in the higher income countries. It starts with the anxiety about the sustainability of the sovereign debt in the late 2009, and then translated into a sovereign debt crisis in many parts of Europe. Initially, I think if you all recall 2010-2011, developing world seems to be spared because they show a very strong growth. While economic growth slowed in Europe 
and other part of developed country, the developing country is actually was performing well in 2011, or in this case, the last part of 2010, show a recovery, and they show a very positive, uh, what you call it, uh, economic performance. So some analysts started envisioning decoupling, and even extrapolating about what that would mean for the global economy. The World Bank economic prospect, global economic prospect, which we just launched uh, this January 2012, predicted that uncertainty and vulnerabilities, which has come from the European crisis, have entered, uh, it, it will enter and suffer recession. The growth in several developing countries will be affected. Brazil, India, Russia, South Africa, Turkey, their growth is significantly lower. The global growth and world trade have slowed sharply. We see that the contagion is coming from many different channels. First, although many of the developing countries or emerging countries is actually good in terms of their fiscal foundation, their debt to GDP ratio is very low, their economic growth is positive and relatively high. Inflation, although some pressure there because of whether food prices, fuel prices, but relatively still in an acceptable level. But developing country has been perceived of having a higher risk. And that's why they have to suffer from the higher cost of debt. If you look at the EMBI and emerging market bond index, they just move only because the failure of talk in Europe, or there is a decision which is postponed. That perception translated into a higher cost of debt. Second, this crisis creates a weaker investment flow. The capital flow to the developing country has been weakened by 55% in the second half of 2011, if you compare the same period in 2010. The ongoing financial sector deleveraging, resulting reduction in the access of capital, and that definitely will affect their growth performance. And the last one is, of course, which is more direct, is decline in the export and remittances, even in this case, tourists. Arrival as developed country suffering the weakened economic performance. It is for all of us relevant to remember that this crisis, that is the European crisis today, is actually comes on the heels of 2008 global financial crisis, or if you call it the trigger by Lehman Brothers field, uh, and share, in this case, some what we observe as a salient feature of this crisis. The epicenter of this crisis in the developed country. Both this crisis in the United States or a developed country raise a very serious question about viability of developed country approach to financial liberalization and economic management even now 
a very fundamental question, and you see a lot of article questioning about the development approach more general. Even in this case, the question about the capitalism as a system. And both looked at the developing world to propel the global economic to recover. The role of developing country is becoming more and more eminent. And that's become the engine of growth, which is everyone rely on the recovery and the progress for the global world in the future. So now how this crisis, as well as the revolution, with all the features that I mentioned earlier, influence the international development direction, thinking, and practices. I would like to share with you some of the observations, but also in this case the change which is already happening now in the institution like the bank because of these two things. The first is we know that citizens are equal partners. As I mentioned earlier, that multilateral institution is worked through and with government. But citizens are equal partner. Certainly government will remain our shareholder. Government is our counterpart and key partner in development. But neither government, government nor development institution can ignore a more powerful voice of citizens. One can easily mistaken assume that the dilemma of government versus citizens is only a dilemma of transition. Even in this case, a lot of actually make the analytical or prediction that in the Arab Spring, if the transition government will be replaced by a permanent government through the democratic election, then the final legitimate channel of citizen voice is going to be settled. We are only dealing with the parliamentary member who representing the voice of the people. And we are going to be disappointed if you are going to make that kind of prediction. Because the people, although they are formally is going to be represented by their parliamentary member, if it is going to be the democratic system, their voice will be still there. And they are going to still voicing their concern through many channels and especially with the information technology that is going to be happen. So it's going to be here to see. So the more complex is uh, the representational role of civic mo movement, the direct democracy that utilizes communication technology in which the citizens can express what they really want as they themselves express it, express it. They don't want to be represented by even elected participant or uh, parliamentary member. For that reason, we have to act knowing that citizen voice is here to stay. 
And in this case, the shaping of what you call it the engagement and development is going to be need to be reshaped. How we respond response as the as a bank, as a multilateral institution. The World Bank has developed a number of tools to engage more effectively with the civil society. Bank engagement with civil society is not new at all. I think Professor Witts knows very well about this. It, in 1981, the board of directors adopted its first directive on engaging non-government organizations. In fact, my own personal experience, the partnership between the bank, the government, and civil society organization in post-tsunami rehabilitation and reconstruction in Aceh at that time I was the finance minister, really coordinating it, all the reconstruction and rehabilitation, especially with huge international support or interest to help. And we engage and in, invite and also make the civil society as the partner and a player on those process consultation or even on executing of this rehabilitation and reconstruction. This has been considered as one of the best practices in the development community. The relationship of the bank and the civil society has gone through multiple phases and constantly redefined by internal chains as well as development process, uh, internal chains as well as ex external changes. The trend is constant. However, because we need to streamline and redefine the relationship which is more, it's deeper, but streamlined. The most recent event is no exception. People movement strengthened the argument for citizen participation. Citizen participation in development decision become more compelling and authorizing environment for us to engage civil society is becoming more and more conducive. So World Bank is scaling up effort to strengthen social accountability through civil society partnership. A consultation is now underway for a global partnership for enhanced social accountability, which aim at strengthening the feedback and participation of beneficiary of public services. Bank also work with affiliated network for social accountability to launch a new ANSA, ANSA uh, the, on the Arab world, a regional network which is of all practice, pra practitioner and participatory governance and social accountability across the region has been established through this network. In 2009, Bank evaluated its engagement to date with the CSO, and the conclusion of this evaluation mentioned that the main obstacles to engagement with the CSO was the lack of accessible data to, moni to monitor and evaluate engagement. Also, a constraint to disclosure and transparency. 
So in spring 2010, the bank, the World Bank launched the Open Data Initiative. This initiative is to address the lack of transparency constraint across the board. Currently, if you see the bank website, with this open data initiative, we make available the public free of charge more than 2,000 financial, business, health, economic, and human development indicator. This is for more than 200 economies, some going back even decades. This is really good news because when I was student, must be long, long time ago, definitely I'm not holding like iPad or those kind of, there is no Wi-Fi. So if you have to be connected to the internet, you have to go to the library or the computer lab. And the data, oh my God, I don't know whether my PhD still is actually valid if you have only 10 observations and try to run the regression and then make a conclusion as if you know everything from that models. I mean, you can do a lot of things now. So that's why I think the student now must be much, much smarter. Hopefully, that's right, because <laughs> If you are overwhelmed with the data and information, you can even, I think it's not getting smarter. You can dumber and dumber because you don't know which one right and wrong and how to do the analytical thing, I think. So as I always say to my student in the University of Indonesia back then, your problem is not about access of information of data like the problem two decades ago. Your problem is going to how you are going to be equipped and know how to select information which is good for you to, in, to enhance your analytical skill, to think, and then to develop your critical thinking, to not to be diluted with all those information and then you don't know, you just become a speaker of some of the headline news without knowing what is actually below that. So that is going to be like the good news, but at least bang now, as in the past, when I was even finance minister or back then, when we are going to ask the data, you have to like come up with a, this big, thick book. And the cost of acquiring this data and information is very, very high. So now it's becoming open, transparent. Actually, it's gonna be difficult. I always like join the institution in which we always declare open and transparency. When I was finance minister, I was imagining that finance minister during President Suharto's time was very nice. You don't have to disclose anything. You didn't have to make a report. There is no financial statement. There is no independent auditors. After finishing budget, no one cared about how much you spend, how much you collect. <laughs> oh my, that was very nice, of course. And then in my time, I mean, with all this state finance law transparency, and then you start to make your financial statement, and then everybody was so outrageous because they see that, why we borrowed that much? And where is the asset? Why the value of asset is so low? Why you only collect this much revenue? Where is all this Indonesian very rich with this natural resources? Where is this revenue? How you spend it? Why you only spend this much for this sector? So like the noise and the question is like constantly there. So you, transparency and openness is one thing which is very, very good but it will definitely need the response from the governance and management point of view. And this is 
the time in which the bank is trying to also change ourselves internally in order to not only just saying that we have become open and transparent, and then suddenly we shock ourselves by saying that, oh, oh, this is not really good to open. Maybe it's better to close again. So the second one is good governance. Good governance is good economics. But this is very good statement. I mean, good governance is good economics, right? Everybody agree, and I think you love to, to know that the World Bank managing director say that. But for us, damn if you do, damn if you don't. This has been the bank experience with tackling corruption for decades. As you all know that the bank article, agree, uh, the article agreement state that the bank and its officials shall not intervene in the political affair of any member. Only economic consideration shall be relevant to the decision. This is the long established apolitical or non-political mandate of the bank. Until the mid-1990s, the bank non-political mandate preclude the bank staff from even saying or telling or expressing the word corruption. Providing development assistance to government with endemic corruption was ordinary practice at that time as long as this government address poverty. So you see the indicator is good. Well, I, I come from Indonesia, of course. President Suharto make a lot of achievement on the reducing poverty, uh, developing the, what you call it, farmer on a subsistence level, producing the productivity of the agriculture is improved. And no one of the bank can say anything about corruption. Until then, we have 97-98 crisis. I think the same thing in Middle East and North Africa. So since 1997, the bank adopted an explicit policy on fighting corruption in bank project or program. The policy was based on research showing how corruption is detrimental to the development and economic growth. The event in the Arab Spring also showed that the Arab youth did not see the distinction between economics and politics when it comes to corruption. To them, corruption was simply bad, especially for the poor. So a simple and rigid distinction between what is political and what is economic is not going to work. The World Bank Group is still prohibited from engaging on politics for the sake of politics. But where politics meets economics, the bank will take the economic consequence very seriously. And the enabling environment for fighting corruption now is better than ever. The voice of citizens in 2011 came loud and clear. Citizens want a new social contract with their government, a social contract that is based on transparency, accountability, and participation. Some states struggling to catch up with this aspiration of their citizen in this area. But others are leading the transformation process. 
You see that there is a progress in September 2011, 43 countries has already signed the Open Government Partnership, a multilateral initiative launched by the several head of state at the United Nations. So becoming finance minister now is not easy and pleasant because you know that you have to open your data and the bank will not lend to any country on a development policy loan unless their budget is open and transparent. When it's come to good governance, leading by example is a must. So in order to position in itself as a leader in this area, the bank is setting itself as an example. We aim, our aim is to make a truly credible and trusted partner which actually is not really an easy. This is the area which is very difficult in the development. It's good in the rhetoric, it's easy, it's also very, I mean, it's, it's, it's very interesting, attractive from the headline point of view, but as a, really a problem of development, corruption is not an easy issue to deal with. On the transparency, the bank access of, to information policy make us as an institution, when we demand our partner, our client to be open and transparent, we also have to be transparent. So our access to information policy make us as a leader among multilateral institutions on disclosure. To, be, to, to, to share with you on November 2011, on the Publish What You Fund Index, the World Bank is the first among 58 multilateral and bilateral aid agency on transparency. You should give applause to World Bank. It's quite a lot changed there. The bank has been improving our capacity to detect and investigate fraud and corruption by strengthening the bank integrity vice president. I always like tell my children that in bank now we have KPK. KPK in Indonesia is very, very known, well known. It's the anti-corruption body. So we have the INT vice president in the bank, which is really improving in terms of the capacity and even detecting the corruption in our project and program. We currently update our strategy for tackling corruption and promoting good governance and the new strategy will scale up progress, go for pragmatic and empirically tested solution, and operate on basis of robust result framework. Um, I can go on actually a little bit longer, but then you are not going to have an opportunity to ask me question, which is good, because it will be very <laughs> Okay, I will try to concise. But corruption is good. I can show you with the, 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 some of the evidence in Peru and Philippines in which by applying this corruption, improved service delivery on a, and enhanced citizen access in Philippines, this good governance transparency really reduced the cost of actually purchasing million textbooks a year. So it's really like a real benefit can be actually uh, achieve through this good governance. But I would like to touch the last issue which is related to equality. Equality matters. 
As we, and I mentioned earlier about this disconnection between the macroeconomic indicators with what is the everyday life that people actually suffering or facing. Growth and other macro indicators are definitely not enough. For example, in Tunisia, before this crisis or revolution, the average growth, economic growth is 5% over 20 years. So it's really a good achievement. Even in Indonesia before the revolution 97-98, our growth is around 6 to 7% for almost 30 years. That's why we can reduce poverty. 5% in Tunisia growth rate, which is not really reflecting what is the distribution and what is enjoyed by especially the majority of the population. This is especially true because the data in Tunisia, especially on the rural region, they don't have the statistical data. So we see that uh, under this post-revolution, the Tunisian government now has set development of lagging region as a priority of their development strategy. But let me look why, uh, let me share with you why especially economists is biased in favor of only using the macroeconomic indicators, especially as a proxy of development progress. First, the trickle-down assumption which hold that the larger the pie, the larger the share of each individual in the society can enjoy. Theoretically, it's like that. So grow first, and then it will trickling down. So it is sufficient to achieve growth in order to achieve welfare and equality. That is the assumption. Because if the economy is not growing, the pie is not growing, what will be divided? What will be distributed? So growth is definitely, from many different point of view, you have to still actually look at the growth as an important indicator. But why we are so biased in favor of growth? Because the indicator is ease, and especially now with the trend of standardization of the data, it's easily collected across country, across economy. So it's easy to compare across economy and country using this growth indicator. While if you're talking about poverty and human progress or human development index, there is a lot of inaccuracy, scarcity, lack of data here and there. So that's why you are not really using it as a, or in, in this case, it's not become the used quite widely. And the third is that the, the fiscal and the market dimension in this case is not really reflecting the human or the social dimension. I am a macroeconomist at training. I was a fi minister of finance. I can easily say, it, and this is just, I just recently visited some countries. Usually the, the standard question is what is your growth, inflation, what is the, your balance of payment, budget deficit, debt to GDP ratio, how much you pay for serving, servicing your debt, current account surplus, primary surplus, and all those things. But it's not really reflecting the social dimension and especially what is the development issue much wider. So we know that this is not going to 
really reflect the real progress. The recent IMF study showed that income inequality has a strong and robust inverse relationship with the duration of growth. If a country that have 10% decrease in their inequality, that, will, that it will increase the expected length of growth by 50%. So actually, equality should not become a trade-off as for a growth. It should be something which is sustaining the growth itself. The Arab Spring is showing that it is not about growth. The growth figure was good. The ASEAN crisis in 97 was not also about growth. The growth was impressive. So it's about equality and even about which is more, more subtle that is related to the process of growth itself. This is what we call it the inclusive growth. How we can design the growth model or the economic model which is going to include and making sure that the distribution of the benefit is going to be enjoyed more across the population. Before I finish uh, my speech tonight, there are still two things. The first one is on the prescription of development. I was the finance minister when the World Bank has the annual meeting back in 2007 in Singapore. Was it 2007 or 2006? Of course, as a client, I can make a very good speech by telling bank you should not do this and that because usually the bank will tell us to do this and that. So during the annual meeting, it's really a good time for us to tell the bank not to do this or to do that. I'm telling them that stop lecturing us and I think this crisis as well as the revolution is just giving us lesson learned. There is no one prescription. Definitely in many of your textbooks there is no one size fits all. That is something which is really true. But the question is if there is no one size fits all is what is then? Each country definitely have their own unique position. The social, cultural, political, it's going to be the one which is dictating what you can do, what sequence of policy, what is more acceptable. The principle of good policy and good policy will always prevail. It can, so it can be actually proved in many different history as well as different economy. But how you formulate a good policy in this case has become a much, much complex in which you have to take into account the political, social, cultural of the people. Even in this case, when a country have no social safety net and then you say that, well, you know what? Your budget is not sustainable. And once which is not make the budget sustainable is because you spend a lot on your subsidy. So for you to improve your budget in order for you to restore growth, you have to reduce your subsidy. Increase the price tomorrow. If you're not going to like provide with a good social safety net, you're actually punishing even more the poor people. With the policy which is actually the goal is good. Because without sound and strong fiscal or budget, there is no way a country can actually develop themselves. But how you achieve that is something that we learn a lot. 
In our past history of development, we know that the sequencing matters a lot. We know that providing social safety net is very much important in preparing especially the most vulnerable and poor so that they can withstand the shock, they can be protected, they can even in this case empower so that they will be able to participate in the growth trajectory after the stabilization is restored. The last thing that I would like to share with you is the role of middle income country. If you discuss about many of these development community now, international development, the emerging country has become the critical force of the global economic development. The World Bank predict that by 2025, six major economy, Brazil, China, India, Indonesia, South Korea, and Russia will account for more than half of global growth. I think the World Bank is not making prediction because the managing director now coming from Indonesia, I guess. <laughs> Hopefully not. I don't think so. So if you look at the pie of this global economy, the balancing player is there. And it is even more accentuated with this crisis in which the, global, uh, the, the European economy, in order for them to consolidate and restore their stability, the dividend is going to weaken. In Indonesian experience, we need around five years to consolidate from the debt to GDP ratio 110 into 60, and then currently it's around 24% takes 10 years to that level. So you can imagine how many developed countries here with such a very high debt to GDP ratio will need to consolidate. And the faster, the higher the growth as well, it's gonna be, it's the faster for you to consolidate this debt to GDP ratio to a more sustainable level. The emerging country, middle income countries becoming more important. So they have, and they are becoming more and more active as a shareholder rather than a client and borrower of the bank. They even in this case is becoming more and more responsible. So collective responsibility and collective accountability is becoming more important. When you are gaining importance, power, and role, then you are becoming also responsible. Many developing country or emerging country, middle income country have to prepare and assume this new responsibility. And being middle income country doesn't mean that you are not free from your development challenge. In fact, the number of poor in middle income country is still going to be the biggest. The difference is that they have to address using their own resources, using their accumulated knowledge and experience in development. So they are not in the position of asking and begging international community to help. The role of the bank as a multilateral development institution, as a partner, we will use more our knowledge rather than the money or lending for many middle income countries who will continue their endeavor to develop themselves. And this new role of middle income country in the international development community is going to be also huge. It's not only addressing their own domestic issue, more and more. 
Many developing countries will prepare themselves and playing more regional or even global role. China, India, the knowledge is not only from north to south, west to east, down south to south, even south to north. And that is going to be like the environment in which we operate. So in conclusion, because I look at this nine, so I give 30% for the 30 minutes for the question and answer. Definitely 2011 is a historical year that will shape both the way we work and to address development issue globally. The way we operate, the way we engage, and even in this case, the accountability and responsibility of the multilateral institution. The change of our shareholder, the change of our own partner or client, as well as the connection of citizen and people facilitating with this technology will make us a different institution. So I do hope in this endeavor, this is not something which I can tell you that this is going to be the final picture, but the history is in making and we are shaping all these chains. The role of many of the scholar here, intellectual leader or the future leader is going to be very critical in shaping this multilateral institution or development approach and thinking and direction is going to be very critical in shaping what is going to be the global outlook, the global economy, the global prosperity, which is we are all collectively responsible to manage, to improve, and also to strengthen it. Thank you very much. Okay, well, thank you very much. We will finish uh, on the dot of, or slightly before, 7.30. Um, so, Sri Mulyani, um, after the uh, introduction about the interaction between the revolutions of 2011 and the financial crisis in the West, went on to talk about several features of the World Bank's involvement in development issues uh, one was um, engagement with civil society actors, the new World Bank engagement with civil society actors. The second one, this, this question of governance, good governance, and the extremely thorny question of how the bank reacts to um, corruption, a, a, a problem which until recently the bank um, would not even speak about on the grounds that corruption was political and the bank was an apolitical organization. Um, thirdly, the question, another very difficult question for the bank, the question of inequality. The bank has talked about equity on the grounds that equity is about opportunities to make income and therefore opportunities are apolitical so that the bank as an apolitical organization can talk about equity but it cannot talk about inequality because inequality is about outcomes and that is political. Um, there are certainly some executive directors on the board of the bank who have made that argument that the bank mustn't talk about inequality as distinct from equity. And then the fourth point was about um, policy prescriptions. How does the bank operate once it has decided that it is not true that one 
size best fits all, as in the Washington consensus is valid for everybody, how does the bank then operate? And finally, this question of the role of um, middle-income countries. Um, by the way, India has graduated from low-income to middle-income, and so this cohort of middle-income countries, which of course includes China and Brazil, um, is now by far the sort of the, the biggest component of World Bank borrowing countries, and that then again sets the very difficult question of how the bank relates to countries that are middle-income rather than low-income and do have resources to um, contribute in large part to the reduction of poverty within their um, borders, what then is the role of the World Bank in terms of, for example, supplying knowledge? Well, um, as that, uh, inter that, that comment may have suggested, I could talk for approximately one more hour about what we have just heard, but um, <clears throat> the, I suggest the format should be, I'll take maybe three questions in sequence, and then Sri Mulyani will respond to this cluster of questions, but, and we will finish at 7.30, so just hang on. So um, who would like to begin? Um, I see a, a woman up on the aisle just behind you, and then you in front, the man with it, the uh, jacket. It was Sri Mulyani. Um, I was actually one of your students at University of Indonesia. Oh. Okay. When, when was that? A long time ago, I'd rather not to say. <laughs> um, you mentioned about World Bank requires uh, openness from the countries. Um, what does the World Bank do to ensure that the data provided are actually accurate? I think in Europe, we saw recently particular, particular country had been providing a bit misleading data, and then, you know, uh, European um, Union use those data to kind of plan um, the future. Does that Thank country's you. name begin with G? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the question is, uh, what does the bank do about um, uh, ensuring that the data provided to it is more reliable than that of some European countries provided to the EU? Um, a sec yes, the second question, the gentleman in front. Sorry, I'm uh, Iranian. I've studied international political economy. My question is a bit related to our question. Uh, in my country, in Iran, many people, many academics and business owners, they don't know exactly what the GDP income and actually any data or statistics. Even members of parliament, they have begged the government actually to hand us real data. Actually, no one knows about the rate of inflation. No one knows about economic uh, economic data. How uh, IMF or World Bank, World Bank can put a pressure on Iranian government to report true data and true statistics? Because uh, when IMF says that okay, Iran is going to have a uh, let's say 20 percent in heaven, 20 percent actually progress in their economy, 20 percent growth. Everyone thinks that, okay, that's right. But as far as I know, it depends on the reports by the government. So how can you put the pressure on the government? Because I guess that Iran is not a member of those 43 countries who have signed for transparency. How okay, can you put so these two questions are very similar. Um, yes, the third question. 
Hi, I, I was just wondering um, that you spoke a little bit about the, um, uh, the World Bank's increased engagement with civil society groups such as uh, and NGOs, and I was just wondering, do you think this trend would make the bank more susceptible to American influence since uh, these transnational groups tend to lobby U.S. Congress on to force their agenda onto the bank through funding review? That's an excellent question. I think we'll take uh, one, one more. Yes, down at the front. Just, just a second, there's a microphone. I wonder if I'm the only person here who has actually managed many overseas construction projects in developing countries with World Bank finance. Uh, I'm slightly puzzled at some of the things you're saying about corruption, because where there's an independent project manager, and that's what I was, there was absolutely no scope at all for that sort of thing. That's to say, you wrote the, the uh, uh, um, specification, you draw up the contract, and off you go. And the project manager held a checkbook. Nobody in government. It was a good scheme. Where things went wrong was that uh, in a country, I won't mention it, but you could have two projects. Let's say one was a power station and one was a coal mine. Somehow the World Bank had financed the power station, but somebody else was building a coal mine on which the whole thing depended, which never got built because that was handled stupidly by a totally independent institution that was indeed corrupt. Somebody there was taking money and doing nothing. So I'm puzzled really about uh, why the uh, World Bank projects that you get in developing countries aren't put together a bit more and made conditional that you're not going to have a power station if there's no coal mine. Otherwise you're just wasting everybody else's money. So uh, getting involved in, in government is uh, very important and I'm just wondering, on the whole I'm very optimistic about my experience of World Bank projects but I'm not very optimistic about countries that can't put these projects together. Are you now doing that so that you don't get a wasted project now and again? Can we know which region your work was in? Which region? Um, first, in terms of the data, I mean, and the first and the second question is actually linked. Disclosing and opening data is only one step, of course. I, I will share you my own experience. I mean, disclosing the data of the budget, and you mentioned about the, the media, the parliament, NGO. Surprisingly, they need to understand what is actually this data. What does it mean? So it, disclosing is only like the first what you call it, necessary step. The second one is the empowerment and understanding. And that's what you call it, strengthening the demand for good governance, transparency, accountability. We definitely need the quality of understanding about all, what it's all about, so that you know exactly well. So what, how the bank is not only just asking the disclosure, but also in this case is really, for the country, I'm not dealing with the Europe in this case. There is no, especially on the advanced Europe, it's not a client of the bank. The blank client is the middle and low income country. But for a country which is still in the pr process, even building the capacity, they don't even have the central bureau statistic or the statistical bureau that will collect the data. So you're talking about, even in this case, the capacity to collect, to record, and then to publish the data. That is a very, very ele elementary 
fundamental but yet very important for us. If I, I mentioned about Tunisia, in which the data at the rural poverty is not there. If I discuss with many countries now that they say that, well, can I manage and change my subsidy policy from the general subsidy through the fuel price into more targeted subsidy in which I know who's the poor by name, by address, so I can directly assist them without subsidizing the whole population which is maybe enjoyed by more the rich people. Then the technique in terms of identifying who's the poor how you are going to differentiate between this household and this household, how this household is classified as a poor and the other one is not poor. This is a lot of what you call it a very detailed technique as well as methodology, as well as the capacity to collect it. That is something which is, well, as an academician, or academic can also discuss about what is the relevant and the right approach in really identifying the poor and then, then you collect the data. So we work in really, supporting the country in order to be able to collect, to produce, to manage, and to disclose data, especially for the low-income country. But when the data has been collected and disclosed, who's going to use this data? Because at the end, it is not only about disclosure as the goals. It is about the disclosure that then you can ask the accountability. It should be linked with what you promise. If you promise that you are going to use your taxpayer money in order to reduce the child mortality, or you are going to improve the education, then you have to link it with that. Where in the budget that you can find that information? So yes, my own experience in Indonesia when we have this reformasi. The reformasi is that in the past when President Suharto time, nothing has been disclosed. Or if it is disclosed, it's already five years too late. But when then you start disclosing it, I was amazed that even the media, because the reporter doesn't know how to read the budget, they don't know what is the crisis, what does it mean this bailout, why it suddenly increased the debt, what does it mean having this debt. So at that time, I was creating a course for many media reporters in my university, inviting them, this young reporter with many background of education sometimes really have no basic economic understanding and try to teach them what is really this is the GDP, this is the budget, this is the crisis is going to happen tomorrow if you are going to meet the Minister of Finance ask this question and you have to write this one because this is going to be like linked with this so all this and they really like value that because in order for us democracy openness disclosure transparency will only become the real forces or an effective system to create what you call it good check and balance, not just for the sake of check and balance. This is try to prevent bad policy, try to encourage more good choices, and then to provide with a better benefit for the people. At the end, it is all about that. And that's, that is exactly what we need to, to do. So parliamentary member, yes. Sometimes in this case, they need to have an assistant or a staff who will advise them to read the data or even asking the question and so on. So people, parliament, media, they all need to understand data. But even in a more sophisticated, mature democratic system, the data can be still manipulated. If you are talking about fraud and criminal, all those things can happen. I mean, in the financial sector, you can disclose something which is different. 
In Indonesia, before my time, I tried to sing to the, the association of the accountant profession because when you hire the accountant firm to make your report and make the audit, you do it a two different kind of report, one for the bank and one for the tax office. For the tax office, you should profile yourself as a low profit, as, and then for the bank, if you are going to borrow, you are going to have a high profit in a way. And you can do that because there is no system to check them, and there is no professional integrity to make them that the accountant will not do that. But even if you have the standard, you still can find an accountant which is doing the fraud thing, this white collar criminal. So you have to differentiate between the crime and the criminal act or thinking with the capacity and the development and democracy in which we, the, the focus of the bank, as well as many of the countries, really try to develop and build that system. Um, the question in terms of if bank now engage in civil society, are we susceptible to the US? Well, I don't think that in this case, Wazizi is actually the US agent. I mean, when people are asking for accountability and they want to hear their voice, it's really like genuine voice of the people. They demanded to have a good governance. They want to have the government who will deliver what they promise. They want to know because what you are in a public institution, as a public officer, this is something which is that you will put the public interest first out of your own interest. That is something which is, I think, universal. It has nothing to do with the politics of one. That one country can design the way you do the social contract and then delivering it is something that maybe each of the country have the system and evolution of their policy, uh, politics. But in a way, at the end, it is like the government appointed or elected by the people, or they're representing the people interest, then you have to link between what you call it, you are representing people interest with what you really deliver. And you should be willing to be accountable saying that whether you deliver or not, in a way. So I think the World Bank in this case, if the suspicion that the bank is still co-opted by a certain politics, our governance with this openness, I'm more and more optimistic. Certainly as an institution, you are owned by your shareholder. The shareholder is certainly also have the, you call it shareholder, that's why they have a different share. Some having much bigger share. Now that the developing country has a 47 or almost 50-50, our discussion in the board cannot just think by one, the biggest shareholder telling that I want this and then all the other shareholder is just keep silent and accepting that. The discussion in the board is going to be, is very, very dynamic now. The developed country, we call it part one. When they are going to initiate something or even imposing certain thing, the part two, you call it G11 in this case, they can raise the voice and they become more coordinated, saying that, well, is it really genuinely for development goal or is there anything else that you try to achieve? So. I think it's, it's a healthy, I'm not saying that this is really totally ideal, but as any institution, we are actually having a more balanced shareholder which reflecting different country and interests and system in a way even, or different development states. It will make us even better as an institution. 
It's reflected in terms of the balancing view, or even in, in this case, forcing us to think about what you call it the real development challenge and solution. So I'm not that concerned, but I'm saying that as an institution which is changed is, is good. The last question, I, I try to understand what is your concern, but I think. Wasting World Bank money. Wasting World Bank money. <laughs> the design, well, I can answer by saying a technical process that preventing that. In the way, I mean, within the bank, when the project is submitted internally, there is a lot of what you call it review committee coming from a different sources. The discussion is becoming more open. The discussion coming from a different point of view will provide us with a challenging view how you define a project in this case. I'm sure in this case it's going to be much, much healthier. When the project, I'm chairing because as the managing director, as Professor Wayne mentioned, overseeing the whole bank global operation. For a, for a project which is, we know that there is a high risk, whether this is on a governance, whether a questionable, questionable about the capacity of the institution, whether this is related to some fragile and conflict situation, we take it in the organizing committee and try to look at all different. So at least from the business process point of view, there is an improvement of preventing that. But one, the decision is already made. Now we are saying that, okay, maybe from the design point of view, the project is really good. When you put it really on the field, the environment may be changed, and you want to detect. People want to know where the project is, how much the bank spent. And we are now introducing what you call it geomap. So more than, what, 17,000 bank project now? You can click it. If we say that we built this school in this village in this country, you can click it. And then what you can detect that. G the geomap. Geomap. Mm -hmm. mm. So, I mean, the technology makes us even more, I mean, the room for this kind of mistake is becoming less. I'm not saying that it is perfect, but I think for an institution, we are accountable of using all the possible and available technology in order to improve our work and prevent all those wastes. Let's just take uh, a couple more questions. Yes, you, um, with your hand up there. Thank you very much, Professor Wade. Uh, very quick question. You, you gave a very noble speech about anti-corruption, and the World Bank is also a gateway for reformers. Ngozi has become minister in Nigeria. Nabli has become central banker in Tunisia but also from governments, people join the World Bank, but not everybody has a track as good as yours. For example, the other managing director, Mohamed Mohildin, faces charges of corruption, and is still in one of the top jobs at the World Bank. And I would like to know how you, if you, how you comment on that, how do, can the World Bank uh, stand this situation, and what you feel should be done in this sense? This involves questions about the ethics of senior bank managers and um, why they, some of them seem to be um, insulated from discipline. Is that the, is that the question? No, he's also asking about the Mahmoud Mohaidin, but the other MD. Oh, okay. Well, another MD. Okay, yes. Yes. 
Um, hi. Um, my question is, in addition to the bank's changes you talked about in the areas of civil society engagement, corruption, and inequality, um, do you envision, as a successful reformist yourself, a change in the bank's approach to developing countries' trade policies in an environment where it's become extremely difficult for them to keep up with the global economic changes? Thank you. Okay, so the question is about um, the bank's trade policy, mm -hmm. changes in the bank's trade policy. Yes. Hi, I'm Ruth McLean, a journalist at the Times newspaper. Um, I just want to know, you say that you'll make citizens equal partners, um, and you say that you'll do this through better communication technology, um, but surely that will give a louder voice to people who have more money rather than to the poorest who won't have access to that kind of technology. And isn't there a risk that the very poorest who, surely it should be your duty to help, will miss out? Okay, we do need to finish in a very short space of time, so okay. why don't you take these three questions? Okay. And the last question, which is very good, I think, in this case. We have, I mean, definitely in this case, the access of technology information will require, and in this case, a lack thing that are left out uh, the people who, did, who don't have the access of this technology, and those are especially poor. So there are two things. First, the penetration of this IT or the, the access to this uh, information technology to express their voice or to be engaged. But the second one, which is equally important, is we are not going to just rely on that. I mean, in many of our what you call it, community development program. This is really the interaction with the direct community level is still there. So they are organizing this themselves. They, they make what you call it and establish their own governance. So we fully aware, or at least in this case, we have to be very vigilant that we are going to just listening to the another middle elite class of many developing countries which is maybe not, not totally also is one homogeneous, because you see, even if you talk about middle class, their concern can be varies. So in a way, sometimes also reflecting the real poor. They can be uh, even more militant than the poor. They even claiming that they are suffering comparing to the poor. So I mean, but the information is one thing. We are still in what you call it institutional development, which we work combining with the information data. The consultation is the voice in which we said whether this policy really work and reflecting the people concerned. So it's one thing listening and getting the information from this channel. But I mean, we have more than 132 offices in the country in which we operate. We are more decentralized. It is not like from the Washington parachuting coming for one week and then doing thing, reading the information and then telling the government this is the prescription, you have to do this. It's no longer that way. We operate there. We engage with the people. Our country offices in this case is engaged with the people, the CSO. So it is not only like through this channel that we are going. The second one on the trade policy, advising well. We all know that the, the trade is one that will make win-win solution on a global economy. But we also know that the competition, global competition and through the liberalization of trade, is definitely create winner and loser. For a country which is 
lag behind on the capacity, whether this is the doing business, their investment situation, competitiveness is not yet there, they are going to be threatened by this, by this competition to, to become a loser. I think the problem for us is not about questioning about the trade, but how you are going to design the policy that will empower or enabling this country to be more competitive. And that's why in many countries it's not really prescribing or in, in this case telling them to reduce their tariff. Actually, many countries actually arranging themselves and try to reduce their tariff, whether through bilateral or through this WTO. But many countries after signing this agreement is not really realizing that their job is not finished on this agreement. The more important job is actually try to build their own competitiveness, whether you have to build infrastructure, you have to invest on your human capital, you have to in improve their, their, your, what you call bureaucracy, so it's not going to, you have to reduce corruption. All those things which we know is going to be the obstacle of the ability of the economy and the people to be competitive, because the, the, those which is weakening the competi competitiveness it's really sometimes from the bad policy, bad infrastructure, or inadequate investment on the human capital. On the first, I think, I'm not going to comment on that, and especially I'm respecting the rule of law and the judicial system of any country in this case. So, thank you very much. Okay.